Good morning. My name is Annie Monson, and I've been coming here to MPC for about two years now, and I'm involved with the Capital Fellows Program, the High School Student Ministry, and the Young Adults Ministry. This morning, our scripture reading is from Luke chapter 24, verses 36 to 43. It's on page 885 of your pew Bible, and I'll give you a moment to turn there. The section is titled, Jesus Appears to His Disciples. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. This is the word of the Lord. Dear Heavenly Father, we, we are hungry for more. I'm hungry for more. So Father, would your Holy Spirit please open our minds that our hearts might burn within us today that your word might satisfy all of our longings. Father, we desire you, so meet with us through these beautiful words from the book of Luke. May we experience and taste more than we even expect. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, growing up, I ate three kinds of fish. Tuna from a can, fish sticks from the freezer, and trout we caught from the river. Well, in this story... We are told the type of fish that Jesus ate. He ate broiled fish. Now, it seems insignificant at first, but I will submit to you today that Jesus eating broiled fish makes Christianity unique. It makes Christianity unique. Jesus ate solid food, and it makes all the difference in the world for us. Let me give you three reasons why today. The first reason why... Jesus eating broiled fish is significant is because of this. This detail is an indicator that this story really happened. Look down at verse 42. It simply states, Luke does, that the disciples gave Jesus a piece of broiled fish. Luke is simply reporting what Jesus ate. Not steak, not chicken, not lamb, but fish. Not fried, not baked, not uh, poached, but broiled fish. Why does Luke get so specific on what Jesus ate and how it was prepared? Well, it's really simple. It's the truth. Luke is reporting it because that is actually what Jesus ate. It's not relevant to the plot, but it was included simply because it really happened. And this style of writing communicates that Luke intended his gospel to be considered fact, not myth, not legend. Don't take my word for it. There's a man named C.S. Lewis who is a world-class literary critic, and he wrote this in Christian Reflections. He said, I have been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends, and myths all my life. And if you know anything about C.S. Lewis, he's probably read all of them. (laughs) He says, I know what they are like. 
I know none of them are like this. Of this gospel text, there are only two possible views. Either this is reportage, or else some unknown ancient writer without known predecessors or successors suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern novelistic, realistic narrative. Let me translate. In other words, ancient fiction was nothing like modern fiction. Modern fiction has details that reads like an eyewitness account, but no one wrote like this when this story occurred. The reason that broiled fish is significant is because Luke records these details because this gospel account is intended to be taken as historical and actual. Luke writes because he wants us to know that this really happened. Furthermore, not the main point of this sermon, but think about this. When Luke wrote this story, all the eyewitnesses were alive. It's why he provides random details like naming individuals like Rufus or Cleopas. They're all still alive. Go talk to them and verify the truth and the veracity of what I am writing. And again, think about this. If you were making up a story and starting a brand new religion, you would not include this story about a bunch of disciples who were cowards who didn't even believe that Jesus rose from the dead, and when he did, they start hiding behind couches. You would not include this about the earliest leaders, the bedrocks of your new movement. The only reason why we are told that Jesus ate broiled fish and that the disciples were scared was because Luke wants you to know that I am not writing this as a legend. This is not an idea. This is not a myth. This is not an illusion. But I want you to consider whether this is true. And if it is, how wonderful and amazing this story is. You see, we can't dismiss, dismiss Luke's story as fiction. It either happened or we have to believe that Luke was a liar. It's sort of like if, you, if you're writing a historical account of you know, a meeting, we know what that style of writing looks like. We know what minutes look like. And you either have to believe that's what really happened or it didn't. But the style of writing communicates what the author wants us to read it as. So the first reason that solid food Broiled fish matters is because it's true. Now, second reason why broiled fish changes our life today, not just for lunch maybe, but why broiled fish changes our life is this. Jesus ate broiled fish. He ate solid food because it communicates there is peace with God. Think about the state of the disciples at this time. They are emotionally a mess. In uh, John's gospel, we're told that they're hiding in the upper room with the doors locked. Now, they're hiding up there because their leader, Jesus, had just been handed over by the Jews to the Romans to be crucified, and they are scared that they are next. They are scared out of their minds, and so they are hiding in the upper rooms. And not only are they scared, but think about all of their grief, the person whom they love. The person for whom they left everything was just killed on a cross. And they're grieving. Not only think about their grief, but think about their shame. 
and their humiliation. Just a few chapters earlier, they tell Jesus, hey, no matter what happens, we're with you in thick and in thin. And as soon as the soldiers came to arrest Jesus, all of them ran away. Again, details you wouldn't include unless they were true. So they're full of grief, humiliation, and shame over losing and abandoning Jesus. And now it's Sunday. And they're hearing rumors that Jesus might be alive. Some women have gone to check on the tomb to put spices on his body. And they find the tomb rolled away. And as they walk in, Jesus is not there. And then that afternoon, Jesus appeared to some disciples walking on the road to Emmaus. And the disciples have been hearing all of these rumors that Jesus may or may not be alive. And so just imagine their emotional state in this moment. And I love the very first words that Jesus utters to them in verse 36. He looks at all of them and he says, Peace. Peace be with you. Peace. Peace be with you. Now, if I'm Jesus, those are not the first words I'm going to say to my best friends who abandoned me during my greatest time of need. I've got a few other words that I want to get out first. Hey, what happened? I thought we were in this together. And none of you could even like hang around with my mother Mary? Simon, come on. She was 12. You denied me to someone named 12. Come on. I've got to find some better friends to build my church. You guys are ridiculous. But that's not his response. You see, his salutation is more than a polite greeting. You see, peace was the very mission of Jesus. If you go back and you read the Gospel of Luke from the beginning, in Luke 1.79, we see that Zechariah prophesied that Jesus will come to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. It's what the angels promised in Luke 2.14 when they said, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And in John 14, Jesus said to his disciples, Peace I leave to you. My peace I give to you. Jesus is not just offering a kind greeting. He is the one after his death and resurrection who proclaims and brings peace to me and to you and to the world. And Jesus eating this meal demonstrates the peace that we now have with God. Peter highlights this when he preaches in Acts chapter 10. He writes, And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him, Jesus, to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him up on the third day and made him to appear not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. You know, eating a meal with someone is a sign that you're at peace with them. Even on a practical level, we understand this with Thanksgiving, right? You eat Thanksgiving with people who are your friends. And it's quite a significant statement if your family is having Thanksgiving and you say, 
unless I was providentially hindered, I am not going to come to your Thanksgiving meal, right? That is quite a statement to say, I see the invitation, I could be there, but I'm not coming. We understand that eating a meal with someone is a sign that we are at peace with them. And Jesus eating broiled fish is a statement that the greatest conflict in the history of the world between a holy God and sinful humans, between the most beautiful thing in the world and us who are ugly, rebellious sinners, holiness and sinners eating together is a sign that we have been reconciled. Think back to the very first meal in Genesis chapter 3. In that uh, story, we read of the first meal that when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Think about what this first meal in Genesis represented. It displayed the rebellion and the defiance that now exists in all of our hearts that has created enmity both vertically with God and also horizontally with one another. One pastor described that first meal in Genesis this way, that there was death in that food. And now the second Adam, the better Adam, eats with his disciples and he demonstrates what God has done for us. This, the curse of sin is broken that Jesus drank the bitter cup of death reserved for us, and new life is extended to me and to you. That sin brought physical and spiritual death, and Jesus now brings spiritual and physical life. And this is why the Bible is filled with language about peace. This is what it means when Jesus says, Peace be with you. This is from Ephesians 2. For he himself is our peace, who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, the hostility between humans and God and between humans and humans, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Friends, please hear this. Jesus comes to us in our fears and in our failures and in our shame. And instead of offering a harsh rebuke, He gives us words of peace. We may have abandoned Jesus. We may have denied his existence for our own perceived benefit. We may have failed to live up even to our own promises. And he doesn't make us beg. He doesn't make us get things right before. But he comes comes to us with grace and peace. That's the reason why we pass the peace every week. We don't just do it to make... You know, introverts feel awkward every week. (laughs) We pass the peace because in that moment, 
We are making a statement that we believe that actual peace exists between us and holy God. And that because peace exists between us and holy God, we can now experience peace with one another. It's a statement of truth. It's a reminder that I need every week. It's important. Peace is not simply the tranquility for insulation and ignorance, but it's a cosmic reality because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. It matters that Jesus ate broiled fish because it really happened and because we now have peace with God. The third reason why broiled fish matters to you and to me today is this. It means that the physical, material world matters. Okay? We didn't read it, but in verse 34, it tells us that the Lord has risen. The disciples say in verse 34, the Lord is risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. They're starting to believe the reports that Jesus is now alive. So why are they so startled and frightened when he showed up in verse 37? Well, they were startled and frightened, not necessarily at the appearance of Jesus, but at the suddenness of Jesus and experiencing the reality of him being in the room with them. And then in verses 38 through 41, Jesus invites the disciples because they're afraid that he's a ghost. But he says, use your senses. I want you to hear me. I want you to see the nail prints in my hands and touch me. And in verse 39, Jesus says, For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. He speaks and tells them to get up close, to touch the scars on his hands and feet. And then he asks for something to eat. And then he put boiled fish in his mouth. He chewed it and he swallowed it. Jesus says, spirits don't have flesh and blood past the fish sticks. (laughs) Jesus, in his resurrected and glorified body, is not in a disembodied state, but he has actual fingers, toes, teeth, and a stomach. And he does all of these things, lets them touch him, eats the fish, to prove that he has risen in body from the dead. Now, let me give you three takeaways that for us because of the physical resurrection of Jesus. The first is this. The resurrected and glorified body of Jesus is the proof that he is who he claimed to be. Listen to Revelation 1, 17 to 18. When I saw him... I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Jesus is saying, Because I am alive, know that I destroyed death. Death is an enemy, but death was put to death, And I am the way, and I am the truth, and I am the life. And that when Jesus left the tomb, it was proof that Jesus was more powerful than death and that God accepted his payment, his sacrifice for our sins. 
One preacher who was talking about the empty tomb said that the tomb, the stone was rolled away, not so that Jesus could get out, because look at this, he appeared in the room when the doors were locked, but the the stone was rolled away so that the women and disciples and all of us could see in the tomb to know that he wasn't there. When Jesus rose again from the dead, it was proof that he had conquered death and that the curse of sin was broken through his sacrificial death on the cross. Now, the second takeaway for us is this. The resurrected and glorified body of Jesus is the model of what our bodies will be like. What will our bodies be like in the resurrection? Philippians 3, 20 through 21 says this, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Friends, guess what? We will eat broiled fish in the new heavens. We will hear. We will taste. We will touch. We will hug. We will dance. We will laugh. And our bodies, 1 Corinthians 15, if you want to know more what our bodies will be like, read that this afternoon. But 1 Corinthians 15 tells us our glorified bodies will be imperishable, glorious, powerful, natural, and spiritual. Cleopas, Peter, John, and others were all seeing what their future body will be like when they saw Jesus. And friends, when we see Christ, we will be like him. We will hug, laugh, and eat. Forget all of this nonsense that you learn from Bugs Bunny about heaven. Harps and clouds and some disembodied, ethereal, nirvana state. Heaven is real, physical, and material. Because I got to be honest, I don't want to float around in some disembodied spirit with harps and clouds. But this kind of heaven... That's what I want. And who do I want to be there? Jesus. (laughs) Right? The resurrected and glorified body of Jesus is the model of what our bodies will be like. Third takeaway is this. The resurrected and glorified body of Jesus is the evidence of where our world is headed. What do I mean by that? Listen to Romans 8, 19 through 22. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to, uh, subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. What does Paul mean there in Romans? He means this, that not only will our bodies be glorified, but the entire creation, everything in the world will be like him. It will be glorified. What does that practically mean? It means that there will be no more injustice, no more violence, no more decay, no more cancer, no more car wrecks, no more death, no more tears. This world will be glorified and the resurrected body of Jesus is a down payment and a foretaste 
of what certainly will be. This world matters, and it will not be destroyed or escaped, but refined and redeemed. And this makes Christianity unique. Jesus ate broiled fish because it really happened, because it demonstrates that peace exists between God and us, and it communicates that the physical world matters. Let's go back to C.S. Lewis in conclusion. You may have read or seen some of the movies of Chronicles of Narnia, one of the books, The Silver, Silver, the Silver Chair. He gives us this beautiful illustration of what the resurrection means. Uh, there's a character in there named King Caspian. And when he dies, all of Narnia is mourning, including Aslan, the Christ figure, mourns. And he writes this. Then Aslan stopped, and the children looked into the stream. And there on the golden gravel of the bed on the stream lay King Caspian dead. With the water flowing over him like liquid glass, his long white beard swayed in it like waterweed, and all three stood and wept. Even the lion wept, great lion tears, each tear more precious than the earth would be if it was a single solid diamond. Saying death is painful for all, but friends, listen to the rest of the story because it's not final. Aslan asked another character, Eustace, to drive a thorn into his paw, and the lion allows a drop of his blood to fall into the stream. And then Lewis writes, At that same moment, the doleful music stopped, and the dead king began to be changed. His white beard turned to gray, and from gray to yellow, and got shorter and vanished altogether, and his sunken cheeks grew round and fresh, and the wrinkles were smooth, and his eyes opened, and his eyes and lips both laughed and suddenly he leaped and stood before them a very young man friends Jesus has risen from the dead he told us he would and his pierced hands and shed blood brings peace and resurrection to you and me come behold this wondrous mystery Christ in power resurrected let's pray Our Heavenly Father, oh, wow, broiled fish never meant so much. <laughs> Father, we are thankful for what your resurrection means for us. That there is no longer hostility between you and us, but that there is peace between God and man. Father, we are grateful that this means that we too will be alive forever. And that we won't live in some disembodied, ethereal state, but that we will live in a physical and material world with you. And that we will eat, sing, laugh, love, dance, and work. Father, thank you for these wonderful truths. May they burn in our hearts today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.